Part three of our series, uh, last week we talked about the, the uh, traits of an effective parent, and we talked about character, the fact that you must be a godly person if you want to raise godly people, and uh, that's the foundation for godly parenting. And uh, today I want to move on from that, I want to talk about the job description of an effective parent, and uh, I actually have too much stuff to fit into today. So I'm going to finish this message. This message today is going to take me two weeks to, to preach. I'll finish it uh, the week after Easter. Uh, but I want to talk about the job description. At the end of last week, I started into my topic for today, and I started talking about the job description of, a, of an effective parent, and I talked about the fact that an effective parent focuses on forming character. An effective parent does not focus on spiritual activity or uh, achievements, even though those things will happen. Certainly, we're going to do spiritual activities with our kids. Certainly, uh, you know, it's great if our kids get straight A's or if they do good in sports or whatever. Those, those things are all fine and good. Those things will, you know, might happen or might not happen. But as parents, an effective parent focuses on character. This is hugely important. And uh, today I want to carry on that message, and it's going to take me two weeks to preach, but I'm going to carry this on now. I just want to use a little bit different terminology, and I want to talk today about uh, parenting or shepherding your child's heart. Parenting or shepherding your child's heart. Uh, Too much parenting advice today focuses on behavior. Too much parenting advice today focuses just on behavior. Now, behavior is important. We must discipline bad behavior. We must reward good behavior. There's no question. We're going to talk lots about discipline in these, in these couple of weeks as I'm talking. But behavior is not enough. Good behavior is not enough. Matthew 5, verse 8, Jesus said this, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Notice it does not say, blessed are the decent in behavior. It does not say that. It says, blessed are the pure in heart. As parents, our goal is not to just raise decent behavior kids. Our goal is to raise kids with hearts that go after God. That's the goal. And we've all known many kids, all of us here have known kids and families. Yet You have certain kids that are born with a compliant, uh, you know, easygoing personality. They don't cause trouble. They get good grades at school, they go to church, they grow up in a Christian home, and they, they just don't have behavior problems. They go to church, they go to youth, they do all those things. You would look at them as they're growing up and say, now there's a good Christian kid. And then when they're 18 years old, they leave the house. Within a couple of years, they're living with their girlfriend or their boyfriend. Next thing you know, they've left the church, they've forgotten about God, they're living lives of immorality. And yet when they were kids, the behavior was, was great. You'd say, well, those are good kids. But behavior isn't enough. And if we don't get our kids' hearts, if we don't shepherd our kids' hearts, in the end, we will lose everything. So it's the heart that matters. Yes, behavior matters. Yes, we're going to discipline bad behavior. Yes, we're going to reward good behavior. But we're not going to stop there. Behavior is a surface thing. We want to go to the deeper level. We want to parent the heart. Jesus said this, Matthew 15, verses 18 to 20. But what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart. What comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart, and this defiles a person. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. These are what defile a person, but to eat with unwashed hands, speaking of you know, behaviors and things, it does not defile anyone. As parents, we have got to have a laser focus and intensity on our kids' hearts. And we've got to set a goal. Now, a kid isn't born with a, with, with a good heart. They're not born that way. 
And so our goal is not to have them at 6 years old to have a good heart, or at 8 years old to have a good heart, or 12 years old. In all of those years, we're going to use uh, some of the things we're going to talk about in the next couple of weeks, discipline, listening, some of those things. We're going to use those things to be forming their heart, but our laser focus is that when they're 18 and ready to leave the home, by that point, we want to have shepherded them to a place where they are not just behaving because they have to, but where they are behaving out of a heart that loves God. That's the goal. Anything less than that is not a high enough goal. That's the goal. That's the focus. That's where our energy needs to be directed. Now, you say, well, how do we parent the heart? How do we get beyond just parenting behavior? How do we get beyond the surface and parent at the deeper level of the heart? And the good news I have for you here today is that it is not complicated. You know, they're, they're writing more and more books every month on parenting. There are so many books on parenting. And I actually get discouraged sometimes looking into some of these books because they've got so many techniques and it's complicated. You've got to remember all sorts of things. And one of the things I love is that God's Word is not complicated. And I don't believe parenting your kids' hearts is complicated. Now, I also don't believe parenting is easy. Don't ever let anyone tell you that parenting is easy. The only people who think that are people that don't have kids, okay? (laughs) Parenting is not easy, but parenting also isn't complicated. And the, the, the way to parent your kid's heart is, is actually simple, even if it isn't easy. It's simple, it's hard, but it's not hard to remember. And I believe there's really only three primary components. I believe there's only three primary components that God has given us that form this thing of how do you work with your kid's hearts and not just behavior. And the, and the base of it is modeling. And this is what we've talked about the first two weeks. I'm not going to talk about it anymore today. But this is the base of godly parenting. You can't skip this step. This is the bottom foundation on which all all the rest of your parenting is based. If you want to raise your kids godly and you want to form their hearts, it starts by you being godly. You can't raise kids who love God if you don't love God. You can't raise kids who have integrity if you don't have integrity. You can't raise kids who are serving in God's kingdom unless you're serving God's kingdom. The first base is you first become what you want to raise your kids to be. Modeling is the foundation. But then off of modeling, as you become a person of character, I believe there's two more things, and that's what I want to begin to talk about today, and I'll finish after Easter. I believe there's two other uh, tools, I don't even really like that word of tools, but components or pieces that, that God has given us in order that we can work with our kids' hearts, and they are listening and discipline. Listening and discipline. Both of them, each of, each of these things, building on the one before, starting with modeling, moving into listening and understanding our kids, and then moving into proper discipline. Okay, bow your heads with me and close your eyes, and we'll get into this. Heavenly Father, Lord Jesus, I'm, uh, I'm energized about this topic of Raising Godly Kids, Father, our first primary field of harvest here at Southland is our own kids. And if we cannot raise our own kids for you, then we cannot reach this community for you. And if we cannot reach this community for you, we cannot reach this country for you. Father, it starts in our homes. I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would energize us as parents and families and as a church with a, with a laser focus and intensity on raising our own kids to love you. And I thank you, Jesus. It says in 1 John five fourteen that if we ask anything in line with your will, we know that we have it. And I know that what I just prayed is your will. So we pray that you would begin to do it in us. In your name we pray. Amen. Parenting the heart. And if you're going to parent your kid's heart, You're going to have to start by listening and understanding them. 
you're going to parent at the heart level rather than at the behavior level, you're going to have to go deeper than just stopping them from doing the things that annoy you. And this is what so much parenting is focused on. It's just stop a behavior. But if we're going to parent at the heart level, we've got to go into the heart because it's in the heart. That's where the swirl of emotions from which behavior comes. It's in the heart. For all of us here, not just, of our, not just our kids, but it's our kids as well, obviously. But it's in our kids' hearts. That's way that, where they have insecurities and fears and doubts and hopes and desires. And those things are swirling around in your child's heart. And out of that swirl of emotions and fears and hopes is, comes their behavior. But too much parenting, what we do is we just focus on the behavior because it's annoying. So... Your kid is crying, just stop crying already because it's bugging us, right? Your kid comes home grumpy from school, put a smile on your face. You know what? Go to your room until you can put a smile on your face. We just want to get rid of the behavior. Stop hitting your sister. You do it again, you're going to regret it, okay? And I'm not saying that there isn't a place for the occasional threat, okay? (laughs) But if that's all we do is just put a lid on behavior we don't like, and we never get the heart open and see what's causing that behavior, then we are failing to shepherd their heart. And we might be able to get good-behaved kids until they're 18, and after that, they're, all, they're just going to do whatever they're going to do. We have got to work with our kids to shepherd their hearts. This is absolutely essential for us to get. In order for you to shepherd a heart, what that means is you're going to have to draw out what is inside of them. You're going to have to probe. You're going to have to listen. You're going to have to ask questions before you demand, before you threaten, before you scold, before you discipline. We have to retrain ourselves as parents first to draw out the heart. Proverbs chapter 20 verse 5 says this, the purposes of a man's heart, the purposes of a man's heart are deep waters, but a man of understanding draws them out. I could rephrase that for our parenting series here today. The purposes of a child's heart are deep waters, but a parent of understanding draws them out. A wise parent first draws out from the child why, what's happening beneath the surface, and then after that responds with the appropriate response, whether that be discipline or teaching or whatever is needed. We have to retrain ourselves to listen first. Now, I don't need a degree in child psychology to tell you that this is actually just the right way to raise your kids. I mean, basically what this is is just putting meat to this thing of love your kids. This is what it means to love anybody. I mean, when you're at work, how would you feel at work if your boss, you know, something happens at work and your boss storms into your office and does not ask you, for your side of the story, does not care to hear your side of the story, does not care to hear why you did something, and just reams you out, just tears a strip out of your back. Now, and then maybe he applies some discipline to you, and because you're afraid for your paycheck or whatever it is, you'll comply. But after, after he's done that, will you respect him more or will you respect him less? Less. Will you be more loyal to the company and to him, you know, or Less. Less. I mean, your boss comes and tears a strip off, off your back and doesn't care your side of the story. You're not going to come out of that meeting and be like, wow, I'm just so motivated to just take this company to a new level. <laughs> You're going to be ticked. And guess what? The same way you are, that's how your kids feel too. Yes, we have to discipline them, 
But think of how different it is if your boss comes in, something's happened, and he sits down across the desk from you, and he says, help me understand why you did this. Tell me your side of the story. And then he sits there and draws it out of you, and here's your side. Now, maybe at the end of it, you still did something wrong. And so he says, you know, even after I've heard all of this, you shouldn't have done this. You knew better than this. And he explains to you why you have to be disciplined. You might end up with the same discipline in both places, but your heart towards your boss, radically different. And it's the same with your kids. We've got to go beyond just putting a lid on the behavior. We've got to draw them out and work with them at the heart level. Hugely essential. So let me demonstrate this to you with a, some, you know, kind of a typical everyday scenario. And again, if you're here today and you're not a parent, this, by the way, this whole listening point applies to, you know, all your relationships, okay? This is just huge for understanding people and relating to people and ministering to people. But uh, let's imagine that you're uh, going to the store with your little grade three son, we'll, we'll call him Johnny, and, uh, and I'm sure you can do better, name, better names than that for your own kids, but whatever, um, Maybe I shouldn't have said that. There's probably some Johns here. But Johnny, anyway, uh, you've got your little three, you know, grade three kid, Johnny. And uh, you go to the shoe store, and you're going to pick out some shoes together. Well, of course, Johnny wants the, the shoes, that, and it's out of the budget. And you just don't have money to do that. So you have to eventually just settle. You know what, Johnny, we're not going to get you the shoes that you, know, that you want there. Actually, we're going to settle for these shoes. They're only $65. They fit in the budget. And, and so you buy these shoes. But you know that Johnny is not impressed with these shoes. And so the next morning, you know, he's sitting in the entranceway, he's getting ready to go to school, and, and uh, as he's putting on his new shoes, uh, he's crying. And it's right here, again, those of you who are not parents, you may not understand this very well, but uh, those of you who are parents, you know that this is extremely annoying. It's grating, in fact. Why are you crying about your new shoes? And it's right here that for many of us parents, like I said, we have to retrain ourselves the way we interact with our kids because it's right here that as parents, we just want to make it stop. Just make the crying stop. It bugs us. And by the way, again, these principles also apply in your marriage. Many people do these things, that the same things I'm talking about to their kids, they do it to their spouse. But we just want to make the behavior stop. And so we sit there and we watch this and it's going on and the steam is rising and rising and rising. And finally we decide it is time to teach this child some truth. And we think that we're going to teach them some truth by engaging in a one-way monologue tirade where we're going to teach them about gratitude and finances and all that sort of thing. And so, you know, uh, the conversation maybe goes like this. You're looking at Johnny, you're getting more and more upset and finally you say, Johnny, quit being such a big baby. What do you want me to do? You think money grows on trees? You ever use that one of your kids? I don't have the money. I couldn't buy you any other shoes. What do you want from mommy? What do you want from daddy? What could I do? You know what? You should be grateful. Do you know how many millions of kids around the world don't have any shoes? Isn't this true? And we're telling them all this stuff about gratitude and money, and we're teaching them all this truth. And let me ask you something. How much of it is impacting that little heart? Zippo. You can tell them all the truth you want in a one-way monologue like that, and you know what happens to little Johnny's heart? His heart is closed like this. You can tell him all the truth you want, and not a single bit of it's going to get in there. Doesn't matter how right you are. Doesn't matter how, how true the things are that you're telling him, it's not getting in. You might even get him to stop crying. You might get the behavior you want, but you have not shepherded the heart. You've got an external behavior, but you, well, all you'll do is you'll raise a Pharisee that'll leave the faith when he's old enough. 
And we have got to do so much better as parents than just to close the heart and put a lid on the behavior. What we've got to do at that moment is we have got to retrain ourselves and say, no, I'm not going to monologue here. I'm going to draw this kid out. What's going on? And so imagine a bit of a different conversation, one that goes more like this. And again, it takes radical retraining because for many of us, we're just used to monologuing to our kids. But imagine you stopped yourself and, and rather than going into a tirade, you said, you're upset about the shoes, aren't you, Johnny? Yeah. Why don't you like them? Doesn't matter. Yes, it does. Help me understand. What is it about these shoes you don't like? They look stupid. Right there, you're going to want to monologue again. Okay? (laughs) Resist the urge to monologue. Ask another question. What is it about them that looks stupid? Like Because this is the thing. You actually care. What I'm teaching you right now isn't a technique. As long as it's a technique, you're never going to fully grasp this thing. This, what I'm teaching you, is not a technique. It's about actually caring about your kids. And until you care about them at that level, more than your own convenience, you're not going to be able to pull this off. Not long term. But if you actually care, you ask another question. What is it about them that looks stupid? Johnny says, well, Jared says they look stupid. How would Jared know? We only bought them last night, right? Well, Billy got a pair last week, and Jared told everyone in the class that he looked like a dweeb. And now you're starting to get that heart out, right? This isn't just an issue about crying or being ungrateful. It has, really actually has nothing to do with that. What's dweeby about these shoes? They've got a red stripe in the back. It's last year's model. That's why they were cheaper. Oh, I see. You're afraid the kids are going to call you a dweeb today. Is that it? Yeah. See the difference between these two conversations? In one conversation, you're smacking your kid over the head and thinking that that's going to make a big difference. In the other, you're, opening, you're getting that heart open and you're seeing what this is actually about. It's not about ingratitude. It's not about money. This is about a kid's fear about fitting in. This is about a kid's fear of being made fun of. When you draw that heart out, now you can make an appropriate response and shepherd the heart and minister at a deep heart level. Do you see that? Hugely, hugely important. The Bible talks a lot about this in the book of Proverbs. Proverbs 18 verse 13 says this. If one gives an answer before he hears, it is his folly and shame. Now we read verses like this in Proverbs. Many people read a proverb a day or, or whatever. And we read Proverbs like this. And it just goes right over our head when it comes to our parenting. We don't apply it to our kids. But we could rephrase this for our series here today. If a parent gives a scolding without first listening, it is his folly and his shame. Here's another one, Proverbs 18, verse 2. A fool takes no pleasure in understanding, but only in expressing his opinion. According to the Bible, you are a fool if most of your communication with your kids consists of one-way monologues and not you trying to listen and understand them and draw them out. That's the Bible. Now, here's the thing about all this. When you begin to retrain yourself as a parent and begin to view your kids in this way and you begin to view your parenting in this way, that parenting is not just about putting a lid on behavior. It's about opening up the heart and working with the motivations behind the behavior. When you actually begin to realize this, you're going to notice something right away. It takes a lot more work. It takes a lot more work. 
And if you were hoping to come here today and I was going to give you some kind of shortcut in parenting to get godly kids, you're going to be sorely disappointed. Raising godly kids takes way more work than raising ungodly ones. Way more work. Way more work. It's way more convenient. We're always in such a rush in our lives. We're hurrying here and we're on our way there and we're on our way out the door. And in those moments, it's much easier to put a lid on behavior than stop and and work at the heart level. We have to realize it's going to take us a lot more work. You know, a couple, two Sundays ago, two weeks ago exactly, I don't know if you remember the weather that day. It was an absolutely gorgeous day. And uh, me and LaDon and our three kids, we went into the city. We had some stuff to pick up. And then we're going to go have uh, supper together as a family and just enjoy some time together. And, and, uh, and so we went to Kildonan Mall there on, on Regent Avenue. And it was, it was just a gorgeous, gorgeous day. And so we parked at the, the west end of the uh, mall parking lot because we wanted to be able to walk. And then we, we walked into the mall, and, and it was on the far side, the east side of the, the mall, where LaDawn wanted to go to a store there, her and Joy. And, and so we went there, and, and I had eaten in the stroller, and, and Charlie, our little three-year-old, was walking alongside. And, and uh, long, I mean, when you're, the three-year-old, he's the weakest uh, you know, link in the chain as far as walking, so it takes a long time then. It took about 15, 20 minutes to get to the store. And, uh, and as we're going to the store... Uh, his attitude was, was going downhill, let's say, okay? And it was just going downhill, and it was getting faster and faster. And it's one of those moments as a parent, you're in public, uh, there's no easy place to go to discipline or talk or anything, and you're just thinking to your kid, uh, like, not now. Like, misbehave, have a bad attitude, Charlie, later when we're at home, and this will be so easy for Daddy. But don't now, just be good now. That's what I'm thinking inside. And I'm hoping he's not going to do something where I have to respond. And finally, we get into the store, and I ask him a question, and, and he, just, he just refused to respond. He looked away and, and disrespected me, and I'm like, oh, shoot. <laughs> and it's right at this point as parents that you have three options. Two of them are lazy. Let me tell you what the lazy options are. And they're the lazy, it's the lazy options, unfortunately, well, when I see parenting, not, ne- not necessarily here, I'm not talking to you guys necessarily, but just in general in our culture, our culture... Uh, goes all out on the lazy ways. And the first lazy way is you just ignore the behavior and pretend it's not there. If I just pretend it's not there, I'm just, that'll be good. Let me tell you something. Uh, you know, and because you think it's just going to go away. Let me tell you something. Bad attitudes never go away. They don't go away. Okay. If you don't have kids yet here today, write that down. They don't just go away. But we think if we just ignore it, it'll go away. Okay, that's one lazy way to do it. Just don't deal with it. Pretend it's not there. Look away, move away, whatever. The other lazy way to deal with it is to try to use your words. Rather than properly drawing out the heart and applying some discipline, we instead try to use our words because it just seems it's, it's a low-energy approach. It doesn't take much time. We bend down to their level, and we want to use words to bring the behavior into line. And so we'll use threats and shaming and whatever we can use to bring them into line. So you bend down to their ear level and, and this is where you, you know, maybe you call them again, you, you big baby. And then you say, you're ruining the whole day for this family. I've seen parents use that one. And then you threaten stuff. And, they, and usually when I see parents in our culture threatening stuff, they're always threatening stuff that they'll never do anyway. But you use threats and you say, if you don't smarten up, we're not going to go out for supper and it'll be all your fault. Nervous laughter from those of you here that did this this past week. (laughs) But you try to use threats, you try to use shaming, 
It's easy. It only takes 10 or 20 seconds. It doesn't take much energy. You can whisper it in their ear, but that's a lazy way out. You either ignore it or you try to use threats and shaming to bring the behavior into line. And then there's a third way, and it is intensely inconvenient. It takes far more time, but it's actually the only right way to deal with it. And of course, none of us is perfect. I certainly am not. But every once in a while, you know, even I get it right. And uh, I just remember standing there looking at Charlie, thinking, I mean, the last thing I want to do now is take the long walk back to the van. Like, that's the last thing I want to do. And it was just like a Holy Spirit thought just comes in your mind sometimes. He does this to encourage you. And I just had this thought, you know, you didn't sign up for parenting to take the easy way out. Take a deep breath. Said to LaDawn and Joy, we'll be back in half an hour or so, however long it takes us. And me and, and Eden in the stroller and Charlie make the long way back to the van. Again, is this inconvenient? Oh, yes. Is it something you actually want to do? Oh, no. And you go back to the van, you find your way back in the parking lot, you sit them on your lap, and you begin to have a discussion. You draw them out, you start to look, what's happening here? You start to talk to them. Why is this wrong? How does this affect the family? How does this affect you? Then you apply some discipline, and uh, wouldn't you all like to know what I did? Won't tell you yet, but uh, applied some discipline, had a good talk, listened, had him on my lap. Again, this takes lots of time, lots of energy, discipline. Now he's crying on my lap. Give him a hug. You know, 30 seconds after this whole process is done, it was a long process, obviously, with the walking and everything. 30 seconds after this whole thing is done, big smile cracks across his face. He says, let's race back to, to mommy, dad. And then we're running back to mom. Eden's holding on in the stroller for dear life. <laughs> and we're hooting and hollering. But the end result is it's actually a happy ending. It's a happy ending. It takes lots of work, lots of inconvenience, lots of time, and lots of energy, but the end is a happy ending. And the family's happy. We go out for a meal. I don't have to say threats and shame him with things that are going to last for days and weeks and maybe even years. You know, I'm always amazed, by the way, in our culture, we got this whole culture now that to spank your child on the bottom, that's abuse. But to say threatening, shaming words that can last them a lifetime, that's fine. That's how we control our kids in the absence of any other kind of punishment. Let me tell you something. I was raised in a family where we were spanked. I was never abused once. Never once. Dad did not spank us when he was angry. It was always a process. We got a spanking. You know how long a spanking hurts for? Ten seconds max. It's ten seconds max. But in the absence of discipline in our culture, what we do instead is we try to use threatening, shaming words on these kids, and those ones last for sure days, if not a lifetime. You watch parents where they threaten, 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 and the rest of that evening isn't a good evening, is it? Of course, I know that spanking isn't the only discipline, and you still don't know what I did with Charlie. (laughs) But we were happy, he's happy. He loves dad. He's happier than 99% of the kids out there today. Sad thing to me is that many parents are stuck in ruts of laziness. Like I said, there's two kinds of laziness. I just want to throw up a little chart there to help you visualize this. On the one end of laziness is parents that talk and talk and talk to their kids and never apply discipline. That is lazy. You will not shepherd your kids' hearts. On the other side are those parents who just discipline and lash out in anger. They discipline without first drawing out the kid's heart. That is also lazy. 
The lazy ones on the right there who discipline without listening, they, they sometimes have kids that are better behaved than the ones on the left. But in the end, the result is often the same because neither of them gets the heart. And in the middle is God's way, which is people who discipline their kids after drawing out the heart. After drawing out the heart. And they work at the heart level. That is so hugely important. Now, of course, listening is not just something you do when you discipline your kids, okay? Uh, I don't want you to get that idea that, you know, the rest of your life, you don't got to listen to your kids or draw them out. It's just when you want, need to discipline or scold them or whatever. And that's not the truth. Truth of the matter is that we have to live lifestyles. We have to live lifestyles of drawing our children out and listening to them. And uh, that is hugely important. Your kids aren't always going to want to talk just when it's convenient for you. This is going to take a lot of time. You will have to invest a lot of time into your kids in order to understand them and parent them at the, at the heart level. You don't shepherd your kids at the heart level just by fitting, squeezing them in in 15-minute chunks. You know, you squeeze in, oh, Chris said that we've got to listen to our kids. So you put on your calendar, uh, you know, Tuesday night and Friday night, I'm going to have a 15-minute listening session after supper. Sit down with your kids. Tell me your deepest fears and hurts right now. You've got 15 minutes. Go. <laughs> You're not going to fit it in like that. Now, I'm a schedule guy. I, I wish it was that easy. It isn't. Kids, don't, kids aren't machines. They don't just open up like that. There's moments when their hearts are open and there are moments when their hearts are not. And you can't force them open. You can't force them open. And so a wise parent is looking for those moments when the kid's heart is open and then a wise parent seizes those moments. Now again, the problem is that these moments can happen at any time. They can happen at breakfast. They can happen uh, in a car on a drive somewhere. They could happen... Late at night, you're putting them to bed, and you really want to get to bed. And the problem is with these moments is you can't reschedule them. It's not like, oh, okay, sweet, the heart is open. Let's come back to this tomorrow night at 7, okay? Just keep it open. Keep it. it doesn't work. You're either going to lose some sleep and do it right then, or you're going to miss the moment. Or it happens at a supper table or whenever. Here's the thing, though. If you're never around, you're never going to get those moments. Never going to capture a moment if you're not around. If you're not around at supper time ever, you're not going to capture supper time moments. If you're not around at bedtime ever, you're never going to capture bedtime moments. And so a wise parent doesn't just seize moments when they happen. A wise po- uh, parent actually create, invests time into their family and creates a fishing pond in which moments can happen. You, when you go fishing, if you don't put a hook in the water, you won't catch a fish. But just because you put a hook in the water doesn't mean the fish is going to bite right away. So when you go fishing, you put a hook in the water and you wait. Or you put multiple hooks in the water, but you have to have hooks in the water and then you have to wait. That's what you got to do. Parenting is very similar. A wise parent invests enough time and availability into the family, which are your hooks, so that they can seize those moments when they happen. Seize those moments when they happen. You have to be available. And this is one of the reasons why I'm a huge proponent of family vacations, for example. I'll show you some practical things at the end of this message. I'm a huge proponent of family vacations. Family vacations are one of those ponds of moments that you can create. If you go on a family vacation for one or two weeks out of the year, it's just a tiny sliver of time, but a vast proportion of your kids' memories will, become, will come out of that little sliver of time. And I still remember when we were kids, we went on a two-week uh, vacation as a family every single summer. And like I just said, two weeks is just a tiny sliver of time. A big chunk of my memories as a kid come from those little two-week slivers. 
And we'd go away as a family. And uh, one of the things uh, my dad and I would do, we both loved long hikes. And so once or twice on a vacation, we'd go for a long, long hike out in the bush. And uh, it was on those hikes, uh, I still to this day right now can remember specifically some of the conversations we had on those hikes. Because it's time together. It's the two of us. We're out in the bush having a shared experience. And what's, what's coming out then? What's, your heart just gets open. You're talking about life. You're talking about goals. You're talking about God. You're talking about family. And you have some of the best heart-to-hearts. Those are shepherding moments. But you've got to create an opportunity for those moments in order to seize them. Another thing that uh, dad would often do with me, he started right when we were kids. We had ball gloves, baseball, and we would play catch for hours. I enjoyed it so much. I did it all through my teen years that I was at home. All through my teen years, right up until I was 18, uh, dad and I would play catch for hours every uh, spring and summer and fall. And I never got tired of it. People think that teenagers don't like their parents, that it's sort of a biological reality. It's not true. It is not true. If you build a proper connection with your kids, they'll still love you when you're a teenager, when they're a teenager. And so we play catch. And again, what happens when you're playing catch, when we be playing catch together? We play catch together, you got some time together. Next thing you know, you're talking again about family stuff, history, desires, hopes, all these sorts of things. It's another moment and you're seizing it. Hugely important. You know, they've done research that shows one of the primary reasons why teenagers rebel against their parents is a lack of emotional connection. Now, I get that, you know, teenagers are complicated. Human beings in general are just complicated, but especially teenagers. And, and so it's, it, there's more factors in th- than just this. And sometimes teenagers rebel and has totally different reasons. But they have found consistently the number one reason why most teenagers rebel is a lack of emotional connection with their parents. It's huge. It's not hormones. People think hormones make teenagers rebel. No, hormones exasperate whatever teenagers are going through. They don't cause rebellion. And a lack of emotional connection just comes from a lack of understanding from the parent to the child, a lack of time together, a lack of investment, and a lack of listening. So as parents, we've got to be available. We've got to create this pond of family life and time together where we then fish and we look for moments where our kids' hearts are open and we connect with them at that time. And this is why experts say that families need about 10 to 15 hours a week together in order to be healthy. Now some of you are going, you told us two weeks ago that if we're married, we need 10 to 15 hours with our spouse. Now you're telling us we need 10 to 15 hours with our kids. Impossible! That's like 20 hours, Chris. When am I ever going to get to watch the Jets game or do all those other hyper-important eternal things? Um, I'm not against watching Jets games, by the way, at all. And any of you here who wants to take me to a game, I would lo- actually love to go. That was a shameless plug. But um, <laughs> she think, 20 hours to invest, 10 in my marriage, 10 in my kids. I won't have time to do everything I want to do. Let me tell you something. If you are married and you have kids, you are right in that statement. Nowhere in the Bible does it say that you have time to do everything you want to do. It doesn't say that anywhere. But God does promise that he will give you more than enough time to do all the things you're supposed to do. There's a big difference between those. 
If you are married and you have kids, you will not have time to do everything you want to do. But God will most certainly give you enough time to do those things that you are supposed to do. So I want to do some math with you now, and I want to show you that you actually have more time than you think. You have more time than you think. You have 168 hours in every week. That's nighttime, that's the whole thing. Beginning to end, seven days, seven nights, you have 168 hours. Now, of course, you can't, not all of that time is available for family and marriage and all sort of stuff. You have to work, okay? So let's imagine now that you have to work, I'll tell you how I came with that 60 hours there. Uh, let's imagine that you have to work, that your work is 50 hours a week, okay? Now, many people or most people would actually be less than that, but I want to overestimate to just show you that you have more time than you think. Let's say that you have 50 hours a week at work, okay? And uh, now, of course, there's more to work than just work. You also have to get to work. And so let's say you have a 45-minute commute one way. That's an hour and a half every day times five. It's another seven and a half hours. That's now 57 and a half hours of your week are taken up by work. Let's also say that you have a half-hour lunch in there. I mean, it's not long enough for you to come home and do family stuff or anything like that. And so that's another times five is two and a half hours taken up. So that's how he came up with 60 hours. Let's say that 60 hours of your week are taken up by work. That's actually working, getting there, coming home, lunches, and all that sort of stuff. Okay? So that's 60 hours. Obviously, you can't use that. I mean, it's inescapable. You've got to put food on the table. That's gone. You've got 108 hours left in your week to play with. Okay? Now, of course, you don't actually have 108 hours left to play with because you also have to sleep. It's another inescapable fact of life. And so let's imagine that you average seven and a half hours a night. Again, many of us, myself included, we don't get that. I I shoot for seven. Um, But uh, let's say it's seven and a half. That would add up over seven nights to 52 and a half hours of sleep. So now already in these two big chunks here, we've used up 112.5 hours of our week. And that's stuff we can't play with. I mean, there's non-negotiable. You have to sleep. You have to work. Of course, there are some other inescapables as well. uh, Things you can't get away from doing. When you get up in the morning, you have to get out of bed, you have to go to the bathroom, you have to take a shower, I hope, okay? Um, you got to have breakfast, so let's say, we'll call that your morning routine, bathroom, shower, breakfast, and uh, if we do 45 minutes a a day, that adds up to five hours a week. Some of you might be saying, 45 minutes? How can you finish all that in 45 minutes? If you can't do that in 45 minutes, seek help, okay? (laughs) Or get another bathroom, your husband will appreciate it, but anyway... Um, those are inescapable. So we've used up a whole bunch of hours there already. Uh, 117.5 to be exact. We have 50.5 hours left to play with, okay? Um, so how are we going to now uh, allocate that time? But again, I want you to notice, you've got lots of time here. There's lots of time to fit in, 10 for spouse and 10 for family. Let's start allocating time. Obviously, we need to spend time with God. We have to connect with God. Let's say you connect with God for one hour every day of the week. Um, so again, some people would do a little bit more. Some people would do a little bit less. But let's say on average... It's an hour a day with God. That's seven hours out of your week. You still have 43 and a half hours to play with. So now we plug in 10 hours with your spouse. Okay? 10 to 15. 10 would be a bare minimum there, but 10 hours to really talk with your spouse and spend time with your spouse and play games and and do other stuff. So that's good. And then we can plug in 10 hours now in addition. We still have lots lots and lots of time. You do 10 hours with your spouse, you still have 33 and a half hours to play with in your week. You do 10 hours now and you invest in your kids. Doing stuff with your kids, listening to your kids, talking to your kids, playing games with your kids, going for hikes with your kids, whatever. You still have 23 and a half hours to play with. Let me tell you something. You have lots of time 
to spend with your spouse and with God and your kids. The problem, the reason why some of you here today don't feel like you have enough time is because you don't start with the right stuff. You fill your week up with the stuff that doesn't matter as much. I'm not even saying it's explicitly bad stuff, but you fill your week up with secondary stuff, and then you come at the end and you say, Chris, I don't have time to have 10 hours with my spouse or 10 hours with my kids. But if you start with the right stuff, you've got lots of time. We still have over 20 hours left. Now, of course, we need to model for our kids serving in God's kingdom. So let's say, you know, let's say 10 hours there, volunteering the church. I mean, going to sell, you want to be part of body life and community. And so, I mean, 10 hours and, and serving, you want, to, you want to really exhibit that to your kids. Otherwise, they're not going to grow up to serve God. And of course, you want to go to church. Uh, you need to come here. So that's, you know, an hour and a half service. And then coming here and going and talking another two and a half hours. We still have 11 hours left over. And, uh, and of course, if you're not married and you don't have kids, you've got 31 you know, hours left over. You know, single adults have lots more time to play with. But if you, you chose, if you're here today and you made vows to a woman or a man and said, we're going to be married till death do us part, and you chose to have kids, then you chose what's going to be important to you and you need to schedule accordingly. And you might be looking at this list and you say, 11 hours left over, that's it? And you're thinking to yourself, I don't have time to watch. My, in that time, I don't have time to watch two hockey games and TV for an hour every night and surf the internet and have a guy's night out and, and play whatever sport it is, rec hockey. And, and you might have a whole bunch of things that you say that are really, really important to you that you can't fit into 11 hours. That's the sacrifice of putting first things first. And let me help make the pain a little easier for you. Because some of you might be going, 11 hours just isn't enough time to do all the other things. Let me help you with the pain just a bit. I'd like to help you with that. When it's really painful for you to make a choice as to how I spend what's left over, think about lying on your deathbed someday. That's happy thoughts, okay? Because we're all, again, I talk about this often in my messages. I do not apologize for it. Someday, hopefully you'll thank me for it, but someday every single one of you here is going to lie on a deathbed unless Jesus comes back. That is a very good possibility. Either way, you're going to be accountable to him and it's the same thing. But someday you're going to lie on your deathbed and as you're lying there, what's going to be important to you? Are you going to lie on your deathbed and think to yourself, 25 years ago, I wish I would have watched more sports. Boy, I wish. 15, 20 years ago, I wish I would have played more golf. I wish I would have done it. I wish I would have watched more TV. If only I hadn't missed that one episode of that season there. That was huge for me right now. I just, I just can't believe I missed it. You're not going to care about any of that stuff. You know what's going to matter to you on your deathbed? Where are you at with your spouse? You still best friends? Love each other? Where are your kids at with God and with you? Those are the things that are going to matter. So if that's what's going to matter to you on your deathbed, you need to schedule accordingly. We need to schedule accordingly. You have to prioritize your first things first, and then with the leftover 11 hours, you make choices. So now let's finish this message by getting intensely practical. I want to give you a family challenge. Three things. And... Um, 
And for some of you, these are just obvious. You're already doing them. Good, then this will confirm in you to keep doing these things. But I know when I'm preaching to a church this big, some of you come from horrible family backgrounds. You've never seen it modeled. And you don't have a structure of family life to help you. I'm going to give you a family challenge here. What does, what does uh, some things to help you in your scheduling, all sorts of stuff, things to do with your family that are just huge. And I think they're very simple and they're very easy to remember. And uh, it's, it's just a way of creating a pond for you to put some fish hooks in there and capture moments with your kids. And the first part of the family challenge is this. Eat supper together at least four times a week. Four or five times a week for sure. Eat supper together. Now for some of you families here, that's no problem because you already do this. But for some of you other families here, you're saying to yourself, four or five times a week have supper together. It's impossible, Chris. I mean... There's football and soccer and hockey and dance and music and, and blah, 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 blah. And you have all these things, all these activities for your kids. And you say, how are we ever going to have supper together four or five times a week? We have all these activities. Let me just say something to you. If your kids are in so many activities that you can't have four suppers together a week, your kids are in too many activities. <gasps> the Bible does not tell you that the way to raise godly kids is to make sure, you know, some people, they have four kids, and all, they just feel like it's their kids' God-given right that each one of them needs to be in activities all at the same time, all the time. Where in the Bible does it say that? Can I tell you something, actually? Your kids will benefit more from having supper together with you four or five times a week than they will from any other activity they can be in. Did you know that they did a, a huge study, famous study, 2007, Columbia University. Uh, not a Christian study, just a, just a study, a big university in the United States did. And they compared two groups of kids, huge groups of kids. They compared one group of kids is the kids that started smoking cigarettes early, and they, they do drugs, and they get drunk monthly, and all those sorts of activities, that group. And then they compared them to the group of kids that, that doesn't smoke, doesn't do drugs, doesn't get drunk. And again, secular study, not Christian study. They just wanted to compare these two groups and they wanted to find out, are there common factors in these groups that we can identify? Because that can help us maybe get more kids out of this group, not to go into this group. And of course, there's all kinds of hypotheses. Is it, is it peer pressure? Is it advertising? Is it genes? Is it poverty? I mean, that's always a big one. Everybody thinks that if you're poor, that makes you, you bad. And, and it, whatever, I'm not even going to get into that. But anyway, so they have all these big factors that they think cause kids to get into drugs and smoke cigarettes and all these factors that these kids don't have. You know what they found? Shocked everyone. Surprised everyone. You know what they found was the biggest common factor. So practical, so tiny, so wonderful. The biggest common factor that separated this group from this group was this group of kids ate supper with their families less than three times a week, and this group of kids ate supper with their families three or more times a week. Nobody expected that. They found kids who eat supper with their families three or more times a week are half as likely to try cigarettes, half as likely to try marijuana, half as likely to get drunk monthly, 70% less likely to try drugs, and much more likely to get good grades at school. So, eat supper together. It's at the supper table. This is when you, you know what a family is? It's relationships. It's not just a house 
where you feed these kids until they're 18 and get them in so many activities, you try and turn them into super boy and super girl and super musician and super sports star, and then when they're 18, they go off and they live a happy, productive life. That's not a family. A family is relationships. So you have supper together, and that's where you sit there and you talk. And you talk about your day. And you talk about what's going on in your life and your friends. And you talk. And you encourage your kids to talk. And you ask them questions. And you take an interest in their life. You do this around the supper table. This is actually in the Bible. Deuteronomy 6, verses 4 to 7. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house. That means in order to obey this, you actually have to sit diligently with your kids. You must sit together in your house as a family regularly. Supper time is one of the best times to do it. When you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you go to bed, that's lie down, and when you get up, that's when you rise. It's family life. Second part of the challenge, by the way, can I just say one other thing? When you're at the supper table, um, turn off your cell phones. Turn off your cell phones. Um, we, LaDonna and I went out uh, for a date a number of months ago, and we were in a restaurant. We saw this family coming, great-looking family, and we always notice that, especially in Winnipeg, because you don't actually see lots of families in Winnipeg. And it's amazing to me, we have three kids, which to us doesn't sound like a lot, and uh, we go to Winnipeg, and people will just stop us. Three kids. We've had that multiple times. Three kids. It's like, oh, crazy people. You should come and see Steinbeck, okay? <laughs> We're going to rock Winnipeg's world one of these days, population-wise. But anyway, um, so we watch this family come in, and right away, they all sit down. Two cute kids, mom and dad. Kids, each pulls out an electronic gaming device. Dad's surfing the net on his phone, and mom's texting. And they did that the whole meal. And I thought, what in the world was that? I wanted to go up to the dad and, wake up, man. <laughs> Just because you're in the same room together doesn't mean you're present. So being around the supper table, I would challenge you, turn off. Don't take, we don't even take phone calls. You try to call us at supper, at supper time, and well, we, first of all, we don't have cell phones. But you phone us on our home line, and you're going to get our answering machine every time. Unless you, you yell into their, fire, help, emergency, please pick up. Then maybe you'll get a, depending on who you are, we may care enough to pick it up. <laughs> um, second part of the challenge, family night once a week. Set aside one night a week for family night. And, and just have a night for your family. And someone asks you to do something, no, I'm busy. What are you doing? Doing something with your family. Well, can't, you know, we, we could do something. No, 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 we're, it's family night. And you games, you play games, you go for a bike ride. That's a great time to have family worship. And on Monday nights, we always have a, which is our, our family night. We, you know, we spend time worshiping God and playing games and lots of fun. But have a family night and, and make it fun for your kids. And so that's something they look forward to. They look forward to family night. And the third thing, as I touched on this before, is take a family vacation every year. Take a family vacation every year. Now, weekend trips are great. But a family vacation is one week or longer. It's a week or it's two weeks. A family vacation is, is steroids. If I can use that analogy, maybe that's not a good one, but it's steroids for the relationships in your family. You go away, 
There's long drives, lots of time together, shared experiences, many hooks in the water, a family vacation will pump up the bonds in your family. It's hugely important. Bow your heads with me and close your eyes. Let's pray. Father, we are committing ourselves to raising godly kids. We are committing ourselves to shepherding our children's hearts. May our families become experts in this. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.